Philippians chapter 2 this morning, and uh, we have been in this book now for a couple of weeks. We're going to be in it, the plan is for eight weeks, and to finish up on December 20th, um, kind of taking it chunk by chunk, and uh, this morning uh, we're going to talk about attitude, all right? And that's one of the main themes that come out of these 11 verses, is attitude or your mindset. Um, I have learned, um, you know, I've got a, a you know, in raising a, a toddler now, um, I have to get all my uh, Canon and Eden stories out. Uh, before they're old enough to be in here and won't let me tell them anymore. And so while they're still uh, young and don't know what's going on in here, I can tell these stories about them. But I've learned uh, that with toddlers, um, attitude is an issue. I don't know, know, maybe your toddler's not like my toddler. I mean, overall, he's pretty good. I mean, maybe some folks that keep him in child care downstairs would disagree. Um, But, you know... 90% 90% of the time, he's great. Um, but there is that uh, that 10% of the time where he's got the attitude, the typical two-year-old attitude, and where the favorite word is mine, 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 right? And even things that aren't his are his. And he's yet to grasp that he literally owns nothing. Um, he has nothing. And he has two parents who love him and let him use our stuff. And um, that's okay. Um, yeah, but... Um, it reminds me of the little story of the little boy that was told over and over and over again to sit down, and finally he won't, he won't, and finally he does, and he says, but I'm standing up on the inside, right? Um, that's the attitude, right, that kind of a toddler's house sometimes. You can get them to do, you can always get them to do whatever it is you want them to do. Um, it might take a while, but many times there is screaming and tears and, and all kinds of things uh, that take place in the process because of attitudes. And sometimes you wish you could just get a kid to understand, and, and you can't when they're two years old. If you would just have a better attitude about all this, everything would be so much better. You know, if, if you would just, if you would just get, if you, your attitude is really what's affecting this the most, your, your selfishness, your, the fact that you can't really see past you is really the problem here, but you can't convince a two-year-old of that, right? It's just human nature uh, for a two-year-old to have attitude issues. And, you know, sometimes I think God probably feels the same way about us as he looks down, you know, and, and as we're living our lives, there's a lot of times that he's probably up there going, hey, if I could just get your attitude, if you would just change your attitude, things could be a lot better. In Christian life, some of our biggest problems in the church and in the home and with others, period, are rooted in our attitude. Much like our children, we can be self-focused and we can forget that we really don't own anything, right? We have a God that lets us use his stuff. Um, that lets us steward his stuff. But the hardest thing to do is to change the way you think. And attitude's about how you think. It really is. It's, it's your mindset. And the hardest thing you'll ever do is change the way someone thinks. If we could think different, we would act different. Your thinking and your believing always affect your behavior. That is always the flow. You always behave in accordance to how you think and in accordance to how you believe. And so even when we sin and we say we believe God is good and we say we believe God is holy, we're not acting that way because in that moment we're thinking wrong, right? That leads to a wrong behavior. And we've somehow believed the lie that God's not quite good enough, uh, that I don't need this uh, instead of Him. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, think about this. How many of the world's problems stem from a self-serving and proud attitude? How many problems in the world today stem from selfishness? stem from bad attitudes, stem from being focused on yourself, stem from a lack of humility. Well, in Philippians, the Apostle Paul is writing from a Roman prison cell. And in the midst of pain and adversity, one of the themes that flows from Philippians is joy. He wants the Philippians to have joy as well. And he's talking about all the joy he has and how they need to have joy. And you see the word joy like 14 times in Philippians. It just flows out of the book. 
And in chapter 2, Paul begins to encourage uh, Philippi in their particular problem area. He transitioned in chapter 1, verse 27 that we looked at last week. Starting in that verse, he's transitioned from talking about his personal ministry to dealing with their personal issues. And specifically, there's an area that they have an issue with, with unity. That's their real problem in their church. Overall, this is a pretty good church. One of the better churches, probably, of the New Testament that we know about. Uh, but they, all of them have their issues. And Philipp, Philippi, their one real issue that we know about was that there was a unity problem. There was some fighting and some grumbling going on within the church. He even calls a couple of ladies by name in here. How would you like that, you know? I mean, the preacher gets up to read the, the sermon that's been delivered by Paul here, this letter, and there's your names in it, you know? And he's basically saying, behave yourself. Stop acting this way. That's what happens in this letter. Because that was the one thing, that was kind of the one problem that they had, was that there was a unity problem. And in so doing, as Paul addresses that, and it, he, he gets to the root of the issue, which is the need for an attitude adjustment, and to have an attitude that is shaped not by selfish or worldly desires, but an attitude that is shaped by the good news of Jesus and what he's done. And this morning, it's my hope as we kind of unfold this 11 verses here, that you'll see that what Paul wants and what God ultimately wants uh, for us is to have our attitude shaped and adjusted by the gospel. So look with me at Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, great passage here. Let's pray as we dive into it. Father, thank you for this great word from you here in Philippians. And we thank you for the both the humiliation, the humbling of Jesus, and both his exaltation. And God, we get, thank you for his example, and we pray as we dive into these verses, and we parse them, and as we go through it, God, that you would speak to us, and that your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning. And we ask all this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Alright, you see there in the first few verses, the first couple of verses, it breaks up pretty easy. First couple of verses, he addresses that idea of unity. I call that the fruit of the fruit of a gospel-shaped attitude. When your attitude is shaped by the good news of Jesus, it bears the it will bear the fruit in your life of unity. Unity in the church is directly connected to the attitude of the people in the church. It, it, Paul draws a straight line from verses one and two to when we get to that in verses three and four. And so, and look there in, in, in verse one. If there is any encouragement, if the, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit. And you see that word, if, right? And so we read that, and we have a tendency to read that with doubt. So maybe there's not any encouragement in Christ. Maybe there's not any comfort from love. Maybe there's not a participation in the Spirit. But that's not what he means. It's, it, it can also be translated since, 
uh, like since there is these things. He's not doing it to convey doubt. He's doing it. He's saying if to convey emotion. It's like me. It's one thing for me to say now, since you love Jesus, you should do such and such. It's much more powerful for me to say, if you love Jesus, do such and such. Even if I know you love Jesus, right? It, it puts an emotional element to it. That's what Paul's doing here. He's, he's putting an emotional element on the line. He's saying, if there's... He's wanting them to feel the weight of the emotion in his plead for unity for them. This is where he left off in chapter 1, when he talks about striving together to advance the gospel and having that one mind. And so he comes back, he's continuing that train of thought right here. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit. Encouragement in Christ means... The idea that we it, it, in Christ is one of Paul's favorite terms for Christians and for the church. We are in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. We are united in Christ. And he's saying, by, having, by, by way of your relationship with Jesus, that there's encouragement in that. Well, of course there is. We have incredible encouragement from our relationship with Jesus. If there's any comfort from His love, if, if, if you're comforted from the fact that God loves you and that Christ loves you, if... If there's participation in the Spirit, if you have the Holy Spirit and you share in the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit's at work in you and at work among the believers, if there's any affection and sympathy, if, you have, if you've received affection from God, if you've received sympathy from God, and we have, and because we have, we show affection and we show sympathy. And he's, To boil it all down, Paul's point is that we have vast spiritual blessings from our Christian experience. And because we know Jesus as believers and we're and we're His, there's a great encouragement and comfort and affection and sympathy. In other words, we're, we're blessed. We have an incredible blessing in our union with Christ. And Paul here is making an emotional plea based off our identity and the church's identity in Jesus. And his point is this. We have every reason to in Christ to live like Paul's about to tell us to live. He's, saying, he's taking all the excuses off the board. He's saying, I'm about to tell you something, and I'm telling you, you have every reason to live this way and no reason not to live this way. Look at what all you have in Christ. And so he says, so complete my joy. I like that phrase. Complete my joy. Paul, who is writing with this theme of joy that comes from him as he's in a Roman prison cell, says, you can actually complete my joy. In other words, there's something missing here. I'm full of joy, but you're kind of hindering my joy with your lack of unity your lack of oneness, your lack of rallying around the gospel, your lack of, lack of coming together and, and, and loving one another in a, in, a, in a unified way, that was grieving Paul's heart. He says, so you can complete my joy by acting on this, by rectifying this. Now think about this. If it was affecting Paul's Christian joy that a church 800 or so miles away was not walking in unity, what do you think it was doing to their joy? Nothing will destroy and eat a church out from the inside out more than disunity in a church. It will destroy the church from the inside out. The church can withstand all kind of attacks from without. You look all over the world, the church flourishes. People persecute. People crucify Christians. People behead Christians. And the church just continues to flourish and people continue to come to know Jesus. But I'm telling you, you let a church dissolve from the inside, it can't... That'll kill it. Unity. He says, complete my joy. And I would even say that this would complete their joy. They weren't experiencing the full measure of joy because the joy of walking in unity with their brothers and sisters in Christ was being stressed and being fractured within the body. And unity in the church can break great joy to the church. At the same time, disunity can rob us of our joy. And so he calls them to having the same mind, the same love, 
He says, be in full accord and of one mind. I mean, he's just over and over and over again, he's emphasizing this idea of unity. Uh, commentator Richard Mellick wrote this about unity in this passage. I love this quote. He says, it's, it is not found in an identical lifestyle or personality. It occurs when Christian people have the same values and loves. So that's where we get confused. We think of it, it means that we all dress the same, or we all look the same, or we all talk the same, or we all, we all have the same exact patterns in life, and we all have the same exact views on everything, or we all have the same exact... Every doctrinal view has to be in perfect alignment, and some of them do need to be in alignment, but, but every exact one of them, and you have to view this thing like I view it, and this thing like I do it, and we take the tertiary issues and we make them primary. Or, and that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying ultimately that our loves and the things that we value, that is what should be in unity. And we know that the gospel of Jesus and the good news of Christ in His Word is at the very center of that. What we believe about Jesus and what we believe about the Word of God. It's not the kind of unity that exists in most places though. It's supernatural. It can only be formed through the gospel transforming our lives. It's only through an encounter with Jesus and an ongoing walk with Jesus. See, when we encounter Christ in the gospel, He becomes our supreme value, our supreme love. And while we may be vastly different in our personalities, and we are, and we're different people, but we share in Christ, we share the same values, we share the same love for Jesus, love for people, the mission of God, and a love for His Word, and we all have that in common. And so that's supposed to make, everything else is supposed to kind of come in line underneath that. And it makes it okay that we disagree on this because we agree on this. And so we're willing to let some things go and not drive people crazy about everything. Not drive one another crazy about everything. You know, when you think about at times when cultures and people, or people, I mean just in little small groups, unify, many times it's around a catalytic event, like a catalyst. Uh, even on a small level, you think about it. Um, I mean, we could be disorganized and unable to plan anything. But I'm telling you, you can, you, can get a, you can get a group of rednecks together from Alabama and we can put on a wedding, right? And we can rally around and we'll, we'll make it happen, right? Or, or a birthday party or a baby's born and, and people just unify and people come together. But also in tragedy, it happens. Unfortunately, we're having to see that in Paris right now as the world kind of rallies around Paris and unifies around it. We saw that in our country with 9-11 several years ago, over a decade ago now, how our country came together and unified in the midst of a tragedy. So sometimes it's a good thing, sometimes it's a bad thing, but a catalyst happens and people unify. And what, you need to, what we need to understand and always come back to is to understand that, that ha- there has been a catalyst, there has been an event. The gospel is a proclamation of something that has happened. It's not an adjective to describe the style of music you like. It's an event that happened in history. It's real news. That Jesus Christ, God the Son, has come into the world, has died on the cross, and making it possible for men, women, boys, and girls to come to know God in a personal way and have their sins forgiven because He's taken the wrath of God and taken our sin. And good news, He's risen from the dead. That's a real event that's happened. And that is the catalyst. That is the event that unifies the church. We come together around that event and it's unified the church of Jesus Christ in all languages and all people groups scattered throughout the globe for 2,000 years. It's amazing. It's crazy how that happened because it's the most important event in the history of the world. Church unity is the fruit of an attitude that has been influenced and shaped by that news, by the gospel of Jesus. And whenever you see a trail of broken relationships in your life, 
whether it's in the church or out of the church, many times it's the fruit of a sinful attitude that's not being shaped by that news. Pride and selfishness will always lead to destruction. Nothing will kill a relationship with others in or outside the church like a sin-plagued attitude, a selfish attitude in particular. The church is supposed to be and should be the place that models healthy relationships, that models unity, because our, pe- our people's attitudes are not being shaped by the things that the people of the world are allowing their attitudes to be shaped by, their circumstances, what they have and what they don't have, sinful behaviors and patterns, greed, but rather our attitudes are being shaped by the good news of what Jesus has done. And so, the fruit of this gospel-shaped attitude unity gives us that from the beginning. But what does this attitude look like? Number two, the essence of a gospel-shaped attitude, verses three and four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. You see, he, tells, he gives them this command here, right? And it's in this negative because this is what is plaguing their unity. The reason they don't have unity is because they do have selfish ambition and conceit. He says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the very essence of what it looks like to have a gospel-shaped attitude. The word is humility. To walk in humility. And Paul defines humility in ways here that we don't, here, that we don't usually define it. The first thing he does is, is, is he points out the negative sinful attitude they have. He, the word selfish ambition there... In the Greek, it's the same word Paul used in chapter 1, verse 17 to describe the people that were trying to that were trying to kind of torture him by preaching the gospel, which is just humorous. But that, that were trying to make Paul feel bad and were trying to kind of uh, to get a one-up on Paul by preaching the gospel while he was in prison. And he talks about those people. We talked about that last week. He uses the same word that he used to describe them to call out the Philippians. Do not do this. Do not continue in this. Do not walk in this. This selfish ambition. It's an ambition that is driven and rooted in self-seeking and selfishness. Getting your own way. I've got to have my... Looking out for number one. And then the word conceit there can also be... It means empty boasting. Your translation may say vain glory. It's just empty glorifying yourself. It's empty because you're not the one to boast in at the end of the day. It's hollow because it's rooted in you and not in Christ. See, selfish ambition, what we have to understand is we tend to think of selfish ambition and this kind of conceit, particularly that word selfish ambition, as being, we we almost think about it as personality traits. And we naturally connect it to a very aggressive personality that wants to to just destroy and conquer and crush and rub it in your face, right? So we think of the guy that scores the touchdown and spikes the football and dances around and makes a big show. We We think that's selfish ambition, right? But sometimes... It's also the person that just refuses to get in the game. That's what we have to understand. We can selfishly seek our good by seeking to conquer everybody in our wake to get what we want or by sitting by and protecting ourselves, unwilling to risk anything for the good of others. Both are selfish. It's selfish for me to knock you out of the way to get what I want and it's selfish for me to so protect what I have that I'm not willing to help you. That's still selfish. Different personality types, different ways of going about it. Both are still rooted in selfishness, and he's calling it out. And then he gives us what the right attitude is supposed to look like. He says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. The word humility was not a virtue in the New Testament, it, or before the New Testament. It, it was, it was, they, they used humility to describe the attitude of like slaves and poor and, 
It was you didn't want to be called humble. But then the New Testament comes along and turns it into a virtue. Jesus makes it into a virtue. And it begins to describe the church because the gospel takes the world and it turns it upside down. And he says, so count others more significant than yourselves. This is what it looks like. And this is what you begin to see. Paul doesn't just define humility by whether or not you brag or boast. It's your humility is directly measured by how you relate to other people. It's a choice not rooted in their performance, but in your attitude toward them. Count them as more significant than yourselves. You say, well, what if they're not more significant than me? I'm important, right? Well, let's just say for the sake of argument, you're the most important person in the Western Hemisphere. Let's just say you are. Somebody's got to be, right? So let's just say that's you. That has nothing. You could be that person and still fulfill this command. Why is that? Because he says, count them, consider them, think of them. He doesn't say that they have to be a more significant person than you. He says you have to treat them like they are. You have to count them like they are. This is, about, this is not about them and how significant or insignificant they are. It's about how you choose to treat them and the attitude you towards the, the posture you take towards other people particularly your brothers and sisters in Christ. The positive action is, he says, don't look out only for your own interests, but also for their interests. The point here is that, of course, you'll look out for your own interests. He doesn't say, don't look out for your interests. He says, don't look out only for your interests, but also for their... He assumes you're going to look after your interests. In fact, he tells us, I believe in Thessalonians, to tend to our affairs. In fact, you can't fully look out for others as well if you're not taking care of yourself to some degree. One of the benefits to having your affairs in order and managing your life well is that it gives you margin in your life to help and serve others. Not just to have more and be more, but to serve others more. You know, when I was a kid, I can remember going shopping and I, my mom would, you know, I remember that, just for an example, one year, um, I wanted this pair of shoes, this Reebok pumps. Remember those? And, uh, you know, and sh- and you get the air around the foot. It's supposed to make you jump higher and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I was, it, I, this was like 7th grade, 8th grade, and I was 6th grade. I, I was in middle school. I do remember that. And I was like 4 foot 10, and, which always scared me because that, me and my mom were like the same height um, at the same age, uh, but she stopped growing at like 4 foot 11. And so fortunately, I kept going. But, so it always used to tell me that when I was a kid. I'm like, you're not encouraging me. But so I, I was like 4'10 and like 70 pounds, Skinny as a rail, but I just thought, you know, these, these Reebok pumps are going to change everything. They're going to change everything, right? I'll be faster. I'll jump higher. I'll be a better athlete. I mean, everybody's got, I mean, that's what I need, right? And so I begged and begged for them. I think it was Christmas, and that's what I got for Christmas. I got these pumps and probably had more paid for shoes than anybody should probably pay, right? But we do that sometimes. And, and so my mom was blessing me with these shoes, and I don't remember what they cost or anything like that. I just remember they were all the rage. And I, that's what I wanted. I don't, you know, I look back on my life and I think about being a kid and all the things that my parents gave me and I had the better clothes and I had the better shoes and 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 I, and I my mom would usually be the one that would take a shop and I don't remember her buying a lot of stuff for herself. I really don't. And, you know, I can look back at that and I can think, you know, she was the one making money, not me. Uh, she had money. She was smarter than I was. She was wiser than I was. Um, at that particular time in life, she had more to offer, you could say. Right? She could go out and earn a living. She could do things and contribute. I was just a, a spoiled little kid. 
And so I wasn't in any way really any more significant than her. Some would even argue maybe I was less significant. I had less to offer. But she counted me as more significant. That's what we do with kids, right? I use that example because we've all done that with kids, with what, how we treat them and what we do for them and how we care for them. And it's because we can, and we do think of them as we treat them as more significant than ourselves. It's an act and a choice of love. It's an attitude that we take towards our children and should take towards our spouse in order to, to serve them, right? That's what he's calling us here. He's not saying, hey, you need to find out who the mo- you know, most significant people are so you can, so you can actually do it. No, it's, it's your attitude and your approach towards people to put yourself in a posture towards them that says, I'm going to treat you like you're more significant than I am. You see, we tend to think if humility is, you know, don't brag, don't brag, and, you know, you shouldn't brag. I mean, that's an element. But in this context, Paul says, humility is not simply measuring what you don't do, but what you do. You get that? How you treat people reveals whether you're walking in humility or you're walking in pride and selfishness. Selfish ambition may show up in conquering others, as we mentioned, for your own agenda, or agenda, or it may show up in simply not engaging the needs of others. You don't have to be a jerk, in other words, to be selfish. You can just be silent and not do anything and not involve yourself in the lives of others. So are we engaged in the lives of others? We exhaust ourselves... For ourselves, do we exhaust ourselves for others? Do we have margin in our lives to serve other people, to walk with other people through things? It is only by traveling down the path of humility that the church will get to the destination of you. But whenever there's a lack of unity in a situation among a group of people, it's always directly connected to the attitudes of the people involved. Number three, he gives us the example. The gospel example of attitude. It, it, it's the example comes from the gospel. Your attitude should be reflective of what Jesus has done in the gospel. And so he points to the gospel in verses 6 through 11 to give us the example. Or verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That word mind, the NIV translates it, I believe, attitude. That's a good translation as well. It's a mindset. It's an attitude. It's a way of thinking. People debate. When he says, this is yours in Christ, does he mean uh, that you have this by being united to Christ? Or does he mean this is your example to follow in Christ? Well, it's hard to say, but both are true. You have a new nature in Christ. You have access to this attitude in Christ. And at the same time, this is the example that you are to follow in Christ. Your attitude will not be changed from selfish and proud simply by looking at yourself and discovering you're selfish and proud. Nor is it changed by looking at people and trying to make yourself love them more and like them more and do for them more. Life change only comes by looking at Jesus. It's important to look inward. It's important to look at the needs of others. But we're changed when we look at Jesus. The Bible says, right? We're transformed, in Corinthians it says, as we, as we look at the glory of Jesus through His Word, we are transformed day by day, become, become more like Christ. That's how Christian transformation works. We hold up the Word, we look at the Word, we see Christ, we see His character, and the Holy Spirit begins to change our minds and our hearts to make us more like Jesus. If you see yourself, but you don't see Jesus, it will leave you in despair and hopeless. Over and over in the New Testament, when the writer, and we've said this before, over and over again in the New Testament, when the writer wants to point us to a character change, a, a lifestyle change, or a behavior change, or an attitude change, it goes to the gospel. Be generous. Let me show you how generous Jesus was in the gospel. Right? 
Use your bodies to glorify God. Look, they've been purchased at the blood, with the blood of Jesus. I mean, over and over again, you see the New Testament. And here he says, be unified, be humble, have the mind of Christ. And then he's going to say, now, here's what the mind of Christ looked like. Here's what it looked like when Jesus, how Jesus acted and how Jesus thought, his attitude. See, in Christ, we have both our example and our Savior. And it's important that we understand that. Because if you just see Jesus as an example, it will crush you. You can't live up to it. You're not Jesus. You're not God. You're not going to be. You're, you're not going to be perfectly humble. You're not. That's why you need a Savior. And so Jesus is our example that we strive for, but only after we understand that we need Him as our Savior to save us from the fact that we haven't met the example. To save us from the fact that we haven't met the standard. But He is our example. After we come to Christ, we follow His example. He is the one we are following. You know, I love those do-it-yourself do YouTube videos. Have you used that to do anything like that? I mean, you can find how to do anything on YouTube now. And so, I mostly go and like, okay, I look at it and I'm like, I can't do that. You know, and so, who, do, who can I pay to do this, right? And that's what I end up doing. It just defeats me, right? Uh, because I've discovered something. No matter how much time they take, and I, and I have learned how to make some, you know, some of these videos, you know, you can learn how to make some... I think I've learned how to make a good homemade French fries and stuff like that. It works, you know. Uh, but then there's other things, uh, particularly automobile stuff, that I'm just like, ah, you know. Because here's what I've discovered. They can, it can be a 15-minute video detailing everything I need to see and know how to do it. And I can watch that and I can go, I understand. I completely understand what he did there. But then if I go out there to do that, he's not there to help me. i still got these hands, Right? And so I'm thinking, well, if he did that, but I'm afraid if I do that, I'm going to break this. And, that, right? and you kind of get a little worried about it. So they're great examples, but they don't really empower you. There's nobody there really to help you. And here's the, different, here's the great thing about Jesus. He has shown us how to do it. He has shown us how to live. And then he offers himself to enable us to live that way. That's what we have in Christ. This is yours in Christ Jesus. We, we have the ability through Christ, Him empowering us by the power of the Holy Spirit to live how He's called us to live. Jesus has not called Christians to live in such a way that He does not provide you the power to live in. You say, Jesus tells me to share the gospel, but I can't share the gospel. That's a lie that you have believed. Jesus tells me to, but I can't... No, 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 no. Anything Jesus tells you to do, anything the Word of God tells you to do as a child of God, with the, He will give you the strength to do and the grace to do that you won't be perfect you're going to fail but you'll be surprised what you can accomplish through christ now here's the thing the first part of the example is jesus's humiliation and the second part of the example is jesus's exaltation so let's just kind of walk through it real quick look at verse six he gives us what jesus did have this mind in yourselves which is yours in christ jesus who though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped so many scholars believe these verses are a hymn that was either written before that Paul used as an example and put into the, put into Scripture or Paul wrote this in. But either way, the point is this. It's full of incredible doctrinal truths about Jesus, but they're given to show us an example of what humility and what this right attitude in service to others is supposed to look like. And so Paul begins by pointing to the fact that Jesus is God. Who though he was in the form of God, that means he was in the very essence God. And that he's always been God. Jesus' incarnation was not when Jesus came into existence. We have to, bears repeating over and over again. Some people believe that when Jesus was born, then that's when you got Jesus. No, there, Jesus, God the Son existed for all, and has existed for all of eternity. He's God. 
But in a moment in time, He took on human, humanity, human flesh. And He says He didn't consider His deity a thing to be grasped. He didn't call equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, Jesus didn't think to exploit the fact that He's God. He didn't think to simply use it for His own benefit. But used it and leveraged it for our sake. Verse 6 shows us the mindset of Christ, but it highlights His deity because we have to understand who it is that's humbling Himself here. If anyone ever should have been served rather than being a servant, it would be Jesus because He's God. If anyone shouldn't have been washing feet in the New Testament, it was Jesus because He's God. But rather than exploit His deity, it's saying, He chose the path of humility. Verse 7. But He emptied Himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Emptying himself doesn't mean he stopped being God. It doesn't mean he emptied himself of his deity. He emptied himself by taking on humanity. And he remained God. So he was both God and man. He was still in the form of God. And then he took on the likeness of men, the form of a servant. He was still God and still man. He emptied himself by adding humanity. Jesus is God and He is the rightful heir of all things and He laid aside the privileges of the King of all things to become a servant. And the King of kings, the one in the form of God, took this form of a servant, it says. And this is the essence of Christmas that we're approaching here in about six or eight weeks. God took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. And see, we can't fully grasp that because we're not God and we don't know what it's like to be God and we don't know what it's like to have an eternal relationship with the, with the Father and to be in perfect unity with Him. For we, we don't know. Look at verse 8. Being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So now we have God the Son, King of kings, has now took on our likeness. In every way, He was like you and me, yet without sin. He's God. He's a servant. He's human. And then He humbles Himself by obeying the Father, to the point that He was willing to die. Now that's commitment, right? That, that Jesus humbly and perfectly and obediently submitted to the Father in every way. He carried out the plan of God with perfection to the point of even dying. That's what it looks like to be obedient, to be sold out. The author of life takes on human flesh and lays down His life. That's what humility looks like, right? But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, even death on a cross... And when we read that, we go, yeah, Jesus died on the cross. When they read that, they kind of... Because I don't think they ever in their lifespan ever really got over that because the cross came with a much greater stigma than it does in our culture because we don't crucify people anymore. But in their culture, it was the worst possible way to die. Not just in terms of pain and things like that. It was the worst... It had a stigma with it, a cultural stigma. And it had a religious stigma. Because Deuteronomy said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then so when they took a person and crucified them and hung them on a tree, it was as Deuteronomy was saying, he's cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So they looked at you as cursed of God, written off. There's no worse way to die than to be nailed to that tree because you become a curse. In Galatians 3.13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so while they looked at it and they thought, what in the world? How can this guy be the son of God? He's cursed of God. And Paul tells us, no, you don't understand. He became a curse for you. He, that's the whole point. 
But see, he's pointing out the stigma here of the, the, the tree and of being crucified and dying on the cross. There was a stigma there. And he's saying Jesus obeyed to the point of death, but even dying in the most miserable way, in the most horrendous way, in a way that brought all kinds of reproach from others, in a way that everybody looked at him and just kind of thought, this guy, you know, who is this guy? Why does he die? In a way that people said, you're cursed. The way criminals die. Some scholars believe that the way Paul talks about the crucifixion and the cross, is, for, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, he calls it foolishness to the lost. He calls it a stumbling block to Jews. Many scholars believe that it was a major stumbling block possibly for Paul in his own life before coming to Christ. And it probably was as, as a Jewish man. And so many times when he writes about the cross, he points out the fact that this is a hard thing for some people to grasp and a hard thing for some people to get by because it was probably a hard thing for Paul to understand and accept that his Messiah was not... He didn't just die, but he was crucified. That he died a criminal's death. A death of a cursed man. And he's using this great theological truth to give us an example. To say, that's the attitude of the one you say you follow. That he was willing to obey... And he was willing to love and serve others to the point that he was willing to die and even die on a cross. So let's review. Jesus is God. He chooses to be born in a manger, right? A little baby boy. It's the incarnation. And this little baby Jewish boy is born into to an unwed teenage virgin. The boy who was God grows up to do miracles and do all these things, but then he's ridiculed. He's run out of his own town. They, they try to push him off a cliff. We'll run him off a cliff at one point. He's ultimately, as we know, arrested in all these false trials, mock trials, falsely accused, crucified, beaten and crucified, and dies on a cross. The most important person in the world, treated like a nobody. But he obeys God in this plan to save the world to the point that he dies and dies on a cross. He allows sinful people that he created to kill him in obedience to the Father, and to save you and me. And Paul says, this is the attitude you're to have. This is the attitude of Christ. See, there's no other example like counting others more significant than yourselves than Jesus. There's no better example of not pursuing selfish ambition and conceit than Jesus. No better example of what it means to humbly serve other people than Jesus. I don't think Paul's trying to guilt us. So we, we, we read this and we think, wow, what? I feel guilty. I don't think that's the point. This is not about guilt. It's, not, it's about beholding Jesus. If all you do walk away from here and you feel guilty that I hadn't done my job and, and we have, we've missed something in, in the Scripture here, the, Paul's not saying, feel guilty, feel guilty, feel guilty. He's saying, look at that attitude that is yours in Christ. And look at what Christ did. And, and we're to behold that and look at that and it is to humble us and then we're to seek Christ's strength and Christ's help to live like Christ lived. It's not just supposed to make us walk out of here and just feel bad. How you live your life towards God and others ultimately reveals how well you understand the gospel. When there is arrogance and when there's selfishness and when there's coldness towards others in our lives, the gospel did not produce that. Our selfishness did. Our sin did. The gospel produces humility. The gospel softens us to the needs of others. The gospel makes us like Jesus. In the gospel we learn that we're sinners, but that Christ gave His life for us. In the gospel we learn that we wronged God, but He has made us right. In the gospel we learn that we we are poor and we have nothing in the eyes of God, but He gives us the riches of Christ. In the gospel we learn that while we're proud and selfish, God 
sent Jesus who walked in humility and obeyed to the point of death on a cross to, to save us. And so when we look at the gospel and when we believe the gospel, the gospel changes us to reflect the Jesus of the gospel. And we become forgiving, and we become humble, and we become serving, and we become generous. More so and more so as we grow and mature in the gospel. Now, he ends this section with Jesus' exaltation. Now, why did he do that? I mean, you could just kind of end right there in verse 8, couldn't you? I mean, we've got this great example of what it means to be humility. It ends with the cross, but he doesn't end there. He goes into verses 9, 10, and 11. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Now we're going to talk in just a moment, I'm going to tell you why He did that. Let me tell you what He's saying here. There's no other name like Jesus, He says. And there is no other name. We've experienced that. No other name that calms fears, brings peace, brings freedom, brings joy. The Bible says the only name that brings salvation Jesus' name is above all names. And it's the name of Jesus that every person that has ever lived will or ever will live will bow. Whether dead or alive, whether wicked or good, they will bow their knee to Jesus. Everyone will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. This will bring glory to God the Father. This is God's plan. And even in Jesus' exaltation, He still serves and glorifies God the Father. You see that? <laughs> Jesus is exalted and it glorifies the Father. We read in 1 Corinthians, at the end of the times, Jesus is given the kingdom and He hands it over to the Father. These verses don't mean that everyone's going to get saved. This is not some end time revival where everybody bows their knee to Jesus and we all hold hands and go to heaven. This is not universalism. This is being made to bow your knee to the King of Kings. You may reject Jesus, but you will bow to Him. For those who bow to Jesus in this life and confess Him as Lord, they will know Him as Savior and Shepherd of their souls. For those who reject God and remain in their sin, they will know His judgment and will bow to Him and confess Him as Lord. These verses mean that one day ISIS and every other wicked organization and group on the face of the planet that, will, that crucifies and that murders Christians will one day bow their knee to Jesus and they will say with their lips, not Allah they will say, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then they will be judged for what they've done. But the good news of the gospel is that even those people, that even those people, if they will bow their knee to Jesus in this life, that God will just as surely save them as He will an eight-year-old, eight-year-old little boy that grows up in a Baptist church and gets saved at a VBS. That the same blood of Jesus that was shed for that eight-year-old little boy was shed for that Islamic terrorist or any other wicked group that we could think of. So why not end with verse 8? Why give us this part of the story when it's a story about humility? Because to understand humility starts with bowing your knee to Jesus. Until you understand that He is exalted and He is the one that your knee is to bow before, you can't really understand humility. Until Jesus is in His proper place in your life, nothing else will be in order. Until you see Him as the exalted one and you respond appropriately, humility begins with you at the feet of Jesus and me at the feet of Jesus. And it's when we submit to Jesus as Lord of our lives that we experience life change and attitude change and mindset change. It's through continually submitting to Him daily that we're changed more and more. And you can't have true humility in your life and true the right attitude towards God and others 
that God desires you to have without recognizing the exalted place of Jesus and responding appropriately to that. And secondly, the other reason I think he puts it in here is because humility in the Christian ends in exaltation. There's a pattern in the Bible, and it's true with Jesus and it's true with us. 1 Peter 5, 16, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may what? exalt you. The pattern of the Bible is that God exalts the humble. And Jesus humbled Himself, and He took the form of a servant, and He died on the cross, but God has exalted Him. And in Jesus, we see our example. And we understand that in this life, as we humble ourselves and we serve others, sometimes they will treat you like trash, and sometimes they will crucify Christians, and sometimes they will throw you in jail cells, and sometimes they will treat you like garbage. But at the end of the day, you will be exalted. Because the Bible says that one day, believers will reign with you. I don't know what that means exactly, to be honest with you. There's no it says it, so I believe it. But there's coming a day that you won't be ridiculed anymore, and that Christians won't be the butt of every joke and that the Christians won't be suffering in other parts of the world like they are. There is that that's not forever. It's a reminder of that. The Christian knows that our identity is in Jesus. He humbled himself and we follow his example. And in the same way we know that he was exalted and the word tells us if we humble ourselves, God will at the right time, at the proper time, may not be in this life, but he will exalt us. And it's a lot easier to concern yourself with others and engage in, with others and to give your life for the sake of others and walk in humility when you're confident that God is taking care of your concerns and is looking after your concerns. And when we look at Jesus, we see that. As we see the example, we see the pattern. So here's the question this morning as we wrap up. Have you bowed your heart to Jesus? Have you submitted yourself to the King of Kings who bled and who died for you? Have you have you come to that place in life where you've understood your need for Christ and for the gospel and what Jesus has done for you? And have you surrendered? Have you submitted to Him? Is He your Lord? Is He your Master? Not just your example. Is He your Savior? Do you know Him? Secondly, if you know Christ today, maybe you need a fresh look at the Lord Jesus. We all need a fresh look every day, but maybe you really need to gaze at the gospel today in a world that says to get... Where you're going is to push and fight to make sure you get your agenda. Have you forgotten that Jesus leads us down a path of humility and of service to others? Yeah, He's our Savior and He's our example. Does your life bear the marks of selfish ambition this morning? Does your life bear the fruit of unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ or broken relationships? Is your life littered with the trail of brokenness due to selfish ambition and conceit? Or you, maybe you're just apathetic, sitting on the sidelines, so concerned with yourself that you just don't have time to concern yourself with others. I don't know. Where are you at? The gospel moves us in such a way towards humility that we no longer feel the need to push our agendas over everybody else's and we no longer can sit on the sideline and watch everybody else go to hell in a handbasket. The gospel moves us towards others in humility. One of the key themes throughout Philippians 2, 1 through 11 is others. 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 Humility is not so much about you. It's about others. And as a church family this morning, you know, this should be a place of same-mindedness. You say, well, how can that happen? Well, it happens, like we said, the same values and the same loves. Well, how does that happen? It happens by individual people 
being willing to lay aside selfish ambition, lay aside conceit, pursue humility, and allow the gospel to change our minds and hearts so that we can unify around the same things. And so we're not known to agree on everything. Are you kidding me? I could go around the room this morning and just ask about music preference and get ten opinions, dress code, whatever you want to talk about. We can come up with different things. Order a service. Everything. I mean, we all kinds of things about the way we worship. Clap, don't clap, raise your hand, don't raise your hand, close your eyes, open your eyes, I don't know. Sit, stand, sit more, stand, let, I don't know. I mean, we can, we can have all kinds of opinions, and we're going to disagree on those things. And that's okay. As long as we have the same values and the same loves. Because when those things become values and loves, there's a problem. The same values and the same loves means at the end of the day we say this, we love Jesus, and we love people, and we love His Word, and I'm willing to be not get my way on some things. We're willing to not get our way on everything as long as Jesus gets His way and people get reached. And the gospel goes forth. That's what Paul's calling them to. Because the gospel that saved you is a gospel that at the center of it is a man who came from heaven and took on humanity and bled and died on the cross to save you. And so as we take that gospel to the world to see others saved, there's no way to take that gospel except humbly. You don't proudly take this gospel 